Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to continue on in our series um, entitled The Armor of God. And so the, the, the passage of scripture that's the basis of our series is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, last week, we, we read that passage, but, and we're going to read a portion of it again this week, but we talked mainly about how the, the, the tone that Paul uses and the type of words that he uses here are ones of war, of battle, of wrestling, of fighting, and, um, and, and he's trying to get us in that mindset when he's talking, uh, when he's talking to the, the, the church in Ephesus, he's talking to them about, hey, we need to change our mindset away from that of a civilian to that of a soldier. And so the soldier doesn't take, doesn't become preoccupied with, um, with, with the affairs of civilian life. He follows the orders and directions given to him by a superior officer. And we talked about the superior officer. It's not your pastor. It's not, it's not um, the church staff or the church you attend. It is God himself. He's the one doling out directions. And so, um, so tonight what I want to do is I want <clears throat> to go over the first four verses of this passage. And we're going to get into it um, and see just how... Um, we're going to see two sections of what God is kind of laying out for us here tonight. So let's, I'll read it in, our, in, in your hearing. You can follow along in your notes, Ephesians six ten through 13. It's the end of the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. This is Paul talking. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. There's two parts of this passage I really want to focus on this week um, during our time together. And one, it's number one in your notes, the first line there is, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Verse 10, the first one we read, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, I don't know about you, but I was raised in church, right? And I have heard this passage of scripture read. I have read it. I have heard it read. I've heard it preached on. I've heard people do mini sermons on it. I've heard people do, you know, internet talks on it. I've heard a lot of uh, probably more than a hundred times, I could probably easily go back and, and, and if I could remember all of them, could go, man, I've, I've heard this at least a hundred times. And one of the things that I never did was uh, I never caught the first line. I was so worried about, hey, let me get into what the armor is. Let me talk about the helmet and the breastplate and the shield and the shoes and the belt and all that and the sword. I want that. But I, I, I just for some reason got distracted from and did not focus down on this first line. And it's easy to do if you've been in church for a long time or you're familiar with God's word or you're familiar with um, uh, com- coming and gathering together and listening to messages regularly. It's very easy to kind of check out a little bit when you think you've heard something. And that's what I did a lot when I read this passage. And it's be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. I kind of glanced over that. I kind of glanced over it. 
And I started asking myself this week as I got into the message, how do you do that? How do you be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? It sounds like real encouraging, and then you just move on to the armor, but this is not just like a ramp up. It's not like an intro that he's just writing here. How do we do that? And as I got into my study, I noticed something. It's going to be the next three little bullet points here in your, note, in your notes. Notice what happens when we, when we become believers in Christ. Our spirit, that first bullet point, is made alive. Our spirit's made alive. Remember, God did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive, to be born again, to bring you into new life in him. Second bullet point, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. <clears throat> inside of us. And the third bullet point, we are given an unseen strength to follow God's instructions for life. We're given an unseen strength to follow God's instructions for life. Now, if you'll notice something about these three things that happen when you profess Christ, when you give your life to him, when you become a follower of Jesus, your spirit's made alive. You are a spirit that has a body. But you can't see your spirit physically. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You can't see the Holy Spirit physically. We're given unseen strength. How do you see strength? You can't see the strength until it's on display. And so as I was noticing this, all of these things are unseen to our physical eye. They're all unseen, but they are revealed through our actions and how we, how we go about our life and the changes that's made once we encounter Jesus. This is why scripture tells us to look at a person's fruit or what their life produces to determine what they truly believe. It's what is produced by the way we believe, think, and operate. You cannot see your beliefs. You cannot see your thoughts. You cannot see those, those decisions that have been made. You can only see the product of the decision that's played out in your life. So our inward beliefs are unseen but revealed to the world by the way they change our outward actions. So the next line in your notes, it leads us to this. Belief initiates action. Belief initiates action. <clears throat> Let me give you a little practical um, insight to this. How do you know that belief in, uh, initiates action? If I were to say right now, hey, the roof of this building is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof. Sorry, I digress. Yeah, you heathens. Um, <clears throat> um, just kidding. Uh, so if I tell you the roof of the building is on fire and you go, and you go, oh, okay and you believe what I'm telling you, what happens? Everybody gets up and makes a dash out the door, right? Because you don't want to be here with the, with the ash and the smoke and the debris falling on you from the roof. Why? Because if I truly believe something is happening there, it's going to move me. If I don't believe it and somebody tells you, hey, the roof is on fire, and you go, is it? Is it though? Where? Can you show me that a little bit? No, I'm telling you that the, the, the alarm's going off. I heard that thing beeping. Can you take the battery out of that? It's, it's annoying. And if you do that to your house, there's no judgment because I may have done that to mine. But <clears throat> kidding again. So if you, if you look and you go, well, I don't believe the roof is on fire. Why do I need to go outside? I'll just stay here. 
If you believe something, it's going to lead to an outward action if you truly believe it inside. So why in the world spend time talking about this invisible things that you can't see? Because when you're strong in the Lord, this is a spiritual kind of strength that only the Lord himself can furnish. This happens through his spirit dwelling in us and his might working on the inside of us. So if we're going to be strong in the Lord, our faith has to be in him, our, our trust has to be in him, we must believe his word, believe his spirit, and the spirit of God must be functioning in us, leading us to some type of growth that would be reflective of his word and his teachings. If we're going to be strong in him and in his mighty power, it is there is a faith in him, a trust in him inside of us that cannot be seen, but it's changing the way I act, changing the way I interact with people. It's changing the way I deal uh, when I'm angry. It changes the way I, I deal with myself when I'm down, when I'm, when I'm in any negative scenario, it changes you because the Spirit of God is operating on the inside of you, causing a growth that you cannot make happen on your own and is produced outside. That is being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He starts there. That's where he starts. And with the Keurig. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> if you're wondering what the noise is, it's not the fire. The roof is not on fire. It's just a Keurig. Um, he starts here. Before you put on any armor, before you take up the sword, but before all the helmet and the breastplate and, the, and all of that and the shield and everything, he starts here. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Your faith must be in him. Your trust must be in him. And the spirit of God's got to be in you, actively working, and you have to be growing with it. Follow me? That's where he says to start. I'm all looking for where's the helmet that the fit right? Give me the sword and all this kind of stuff. No, no, no. Start here on the things that can't be seen. Start here. So the second thing I want to look at in this passage, number two, is the strategy of the devil. The strategy of the devil. Verse 11 says, put on all of God's, God's armor so you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Now, <clears throat> again, my I've heard this a million times mind looks over at, a, at verse 11 of Ephesians 6 and I say, ooh, I want to put on the armor and I want to be able to stand. And that's where my mind kind of goes. My mind drifts there and it kind of glazes over that last part against the strategies of the devil. I want you to see this very clearly. The enemies, plural, there's more than one, enemies of Almighty God do not just want to happen across you one day and initiate your destruction. They are consistently strategizing against you as a child of God. There is a strategy. If there wasn't, Paul wouldn't have gone into the detail here of saying there is a strategy. So let me, let me bring this a little bit into modern times and kind of give you an idea and paint a picture for you real quick what, how, what he's trying to portray here. <clears throat> so let's say that I'm out shopping with my wife, which would be of one of three places. It would be uh, Ross, Marshalls, or any Asian market grocery store in the valley. 
doesn't matter how far it is, or if you have, you know, certain things, we will drive and spend the night there until, I'm just kidding, but we will go to any one of those three places. Let's just say that we're out there shopping, and someone that I don't know, someone she doesn't know, decides this is, you know, the, they're, they're having a bad day or whatever, and they have a moment, and they come and try to attack my wife. If that happens, you're going to see a side of me that is quite aggressive. We'll just say it that way. Quite aggressive. Why? You're not going to touch my wife. I'm going to come to defend. I'm going to come to attack. I'm going to neutralize the threat. All of those things, that's going to happen. There's going to be a side of me that's awakened to come to fight to say, no, 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 no. You don't have to put a hand on her. Not as long as I'm still breathing. That ain't happening. Same thing with my son. You come, come to step to try to hurt my child, then I'm like the protector and defender comes out real quick. You try to hurt my kids, my niece, my nephews, my family, extended family, there may or may not be uh, a small arsenal that may appear out of nowhere to try to defend all of them from any attacker, right? <clears throat> so let's say this happens and you kind of have this moment and you defend your, you know, we defend our, our loved ones against you know, some kind of, some kind of on, uh, onslaught or come, some kind of threat. And then, you know, we kind of get past that moment. Everyone's okay. We're safe. We go home. Thank God for everything. And, and I know this probably wouldn't happen. It's kind of more TV, but just roll with me for a second. So let's say that a couple days later, I get a call from the police. And they say, hey, we want you, we want you to meet us at this house. Walk into the house with them. And they walk through the house of the person that attacked your relative. And you walk into, they walk through the hallway, past the bathroom, past all the bedrooms, and there's this really small but weird, creepy side room that's dimly lit. And they say, we want to show you something. And they turn the lights on, and on every wall, there are pictures of you and your family that have been taken over the last year. There's maps on the wall that have tracked where you have gone every week, your route that you take from your job to your house, where you go shopping most. The, there's pictures of you and your friends, you and your coworkers, you and other family members. There's, there's pictures that are way too close for comfort because you start beginning to wonder, how did you get these pictures? How did you track all of these places that I'm going? How in the world? If, if I saw that, I would, you know, there, there's one thing about getting past a moment, but then when you realize somebody's been planning this, oh, every, something else comes up inside of me. Because then all of a sudden, all of my attention is on, from, on a scale of one to ten is on 11. All of my focus, all of my memory, everything I'm looking at, everything that, every person that engages with my family member, every person who is, who I see on the side of the street, I'm wondering, is this person connected to this crazy plan that's been orchestrated to, uh, to injure or attack or assault my family? If it was a one-off thing, it wouldn't be good, but when you realize it's not a one-off thing and there is an entire plan that has been laid out the whole time, there's something else that comes in me going, okay, I got to prepare differently when I step out of my house from now on going forward. Feel that, that tension, that, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? That's creepy, that's weird, that's, that's very invasive. I feel kind of like my privacy's been invaded. I feel like, uh, uh, man, there's some kind of like, oh, just a weight right there. You feel that in that scenario? 
That's what Paul is trying to paint in a modern way for us. There's a strategy, a plan against you. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer, if your kids are believers, if you're a Christian living in a Christian home, raising little Christians, if you are trying to get closer to him, establish deep roots that go into a faith directly in him so you produce what he wants and not what you want, there is a strategy being plotted against you. Now, what I don't want to do is freak some people out. There's going to be a guy with a pitchfork and horns and a tail and you know, for some reason, really deep red maroon colored skin. And he's in the closet or he's under my bed or he's down this aisle, you know, the, the dark alley somewhere. And then I'm just going to be walking one day and he's like, ah, going to jump out and grab me and drag me down to the pit. No, that's, I don't want to put you in some kind of weird, strange, morbid type of fear because God's not given us a spirit of fear. I'm not trying to to, to instill some kind of, uh, some, some kind of uh, oh my gosh, i got to watch every step that I take. Uh, the devil's out to get me. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to communicate what Paul's trying to communicate. Be aware there's a strategy and a plan in place against you. And if you feel like, it's not against me, man. It's probably because you're no threat. So, Paul is giving us inside information, inside information to what your enemy is doing. So, the last part of this message, we're going to go over six things. These are, these are not all of the strategies of the enemy, but there are six things that are foundational to his strategy against us as believers, you and me both, Okay? Letter A in your notes, lying. <clears throat> lying. John 8, 42 through 44. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the things, evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, Matt, I haven't seen the guy with the horns, like, throw lies at me. Yeah, no one has. But I guarantee you, um, I'll paint a, a, a scenario specific to my life. My, my childhood and my past, and my guess is you'll recognize it in some similar way. I was disobedient to my parents. I was rebellious. I did something, you know, that they didn't like, and then I came to realize, oh, man, I'm, I screwed up. I messed up, and I tell them I'm sorry, and they say, it's okay. We forgive you, and I go back to my room, but then they don't really mean it. It runs across my head. They don't really forgive you. 
They're just saying that because they got to deal with you as a family member. That never, they, they, they're just going to say that because they're your parents, but if it's anybody else, they would not even have anything else to deal with you from now going forward. Those lies start running across my head. Made a mistake with one of my friends, and I had to go and apologize, and then they don't really mean it. They just don't have any other friends besides you, and so they're just stuck with you, so they're just kind of dealing with you in this way. They don't really mean it. They're gonna, you're going to notice there's going di- to be distance. It's going to be different. Your relationship has changed. There's going to be now this big gap between you and everybody else now. It's, 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 it's going to fall apart. You see how the, the lies start to roll? My guess is, by looking at all of your faces, you had a similar scenario. You're not responsible for every thought that rolls through your head, but you are responsible for what you do with it. Do not let that thing sit inside you. Number two, our letter B, sorry. <clears throat> deception. You might be thinking lying and deception is kind of similar, Matt. It is, but there's a little bit of a difference. I want to show you the difference here. Second Corinthians 11, 12 through 14. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I will continue doing what I've always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false prophets. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And I'm not surprised, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Again, this is not the red-horned pitchfork guy with the tail going into a prop, into Party City during, um, uh, during uh, Halloween and grabbing an angel costume and throwing it on. This is trying to have you buy into a incorrect thought, incorrect idea, incorrect belief by covering it in a thin layer of truth. M&M's got a thin candy shell. When, the, when our enemy operates in deception, he puts a thin candy shell of a little bit of truth on the outside of a lie and then gives it to you to, to ingest. It's a difference between lying and deception. Paul's obviously talking about false prophets and false teachers and false apostles in this passage. And again, if you're like me or you've been around church, you immediately think, oh, people who are wolves in sheep's clothing, people who are teaching incorrect you know, uh, things to the church, and they're not teaching things that are biblical. And yes, that would be a category, a version of a false prophet. But our culture has another entire very public, very popular, very well-known group of false prophets that aren't in the church. And they're trying to find a way to take the teachings that God has given us through his son in his word, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, preferring someone above you, being considerate, um, doing to others as you would have them doing to you, kindness, love, patience, genuine relationship. They want to take those principles and say, thank you. We like the principles, but the person that delivered them has this archaic view of morality and what we're supposed to be doing. So I would like to divorce or separate these teachings from the God who gave them. If you'll just give us these from this point forward, we can create a better society. I want the... the what is produced from serving God, I want the produce, 
but I don't want the root that grow it. I have no interest in having that grow from my own life. I would like to pick it all and find a way to reproduce it on my own. It doesn't matter if you follow the teachings of Jesus to your best end because following his teachings does not equal salvation. Following his teachings is not the gospel. The gospel is you had no way to get to God. And God loved you so much, he sent his son, sinless life, died on a cross, buried, rose from the dead, and faith in him is the only thing that gets you to him. That's the gospel. Everything else is meant to be a reflection of what's going on in here, like we talked about earlier. That's supposed to be what's produced. But there is a very, gro- there's a very vocal, very public, growing group that would like to separate God and Jesus from the teachings. That is a false prophet. Not just the ones that are running around in the church that are trying to, you know, say whatever they want to get applause and money and claps and feel good. That's, a, that's a, an angle of it, but there's another angle of it that many people are falling for in the church. You cannot separate Jesus from his teachings and have the same result. You can't serve God without him. Deception. <clears throat> Letter C. Temptation to sin. Temptation to sin. Now, I'm a younger guy, um, and I don't remember this person in particular, but um, there's a very popular comedian back in the mid-60s and 70s who uh, did character actors on a whole bunch of sitcoms. His name was Flip Wilson. And you may know Flip if you're kind of in my, my age, not by name, but by face. Like, if you go look him up, be like, oh, I've seen that guy on a couple of things, right? Well, one of his characters was, became very famous, and before the internet, I guess, he went viral with a saying that one of his characters came up with, and it was this, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And there's many, and that statement went viral in America, you know, however viral went, word of mouth or whatever, by back in the, in the 70s and 60s. But it kind of became like this cultural saying, right? The devil made me do it. And people began to actually take that on as an excuse, the devil made me act in this way. And this idea has to be chopped down from the root because it's completely unbiblical. He doesn't make you do anything. How do I know? James 1, 14 through 15. Temptation comes from our own desire. I can just stop right there and weep my own self. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The devil doesn't make you do anything, but he may orchestrate a scenario. He may nudge or influence someone to create a situation that would entice you from an appetite that is in us that we've allowed to stay there, that we have allowed to stay there, that may lead us into something that would cause great heartache to us and to the gospel. This is another reason it's very important if you're a married person in this room or you're going to be married one day. 
to understand. If you're a husband, keep your eyes, your heart, your affection for your wife. And women, keep your eyes, your heart, and affection for your husband. Because if you become undisciplined when no one's looking and be like, it's just a couple Instagram models. I don't know them. It's just that guy who works, who, who does the workout programs, but he never has a shirt on. It's just these appetites. I just do a little bit, little bit here, and I allow that thing to grow. Then my guess is there's eventually coming for you an opportunity to act on that temptation because it's your desire. If I was doing a very, a very long fast and there was no food at all in the fast, it was only liquids, it would do you no good to tempt me with a piping hot bowl of broccoli. I just assumed not to eat anymore. So I'll just stay on my fast. What you tempt me with is an extra large double pepperoni, extra cheese pizza pie from Issa's on 7th Street and Thunderbird, and that's wildly specific. Sorry, I know. <laughs> I'm hungry now. <clears throat> um, that's how you tempt me. Because I don't have an appetite for the broccoli, I got an appetite for the pizza. It's kind of a reductionist, very you know, elementary example, but you tempt, you're tempted with the thing you want. You're tempted with the thing that you have an appetite for, that you have a tendency towards. You have a you have, you are tempted by that thing. Adam Clark's biblical commentary had a great had a great description of the, the, um, the strategies of the devil, and I put it in our notes because I thought it was just um, uh, applied so well. Here's what he says. The, uh, the strategy of the devil is the different means, plans, schemes, and machinations that he, the devil, uses to deceive, entrap, enslave, and ruin the souls of men. A man's method of sinning is Satan's method of ruining his soul. A man's method of sinning is Satan's method of ruining his soul. If we allow the sinful thoughts, the sinful things to remain inside of us, the enemy is going to influence a scenario somewhere that is going to give us an opportunity to act on it. If your heart, if your eyes, if your affection is only for your spouse, men, it's only for your wife, then... Whatever little girl that pops up from your past, some ex that you dated in middle school or whatever, you know what I mean? Like some girl who flirts with you at the office or whatever, um, you're kind of oblivious to it, right? Because your appetite is not wanting something other than what you have and what God's given you as a gift. And if you find yourself in that scenario, men or women, it's time to recognize the strategy of the enemy against you and shut that crap down. Shut it down. Letter D. Next strategy of the enemy, steal and destroy. <clears throat> steal and destroy. The beginning part of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus giving an analogy, a parable of, of a farmer sowing seed, and it's uh, basically an analogy to represent someone sh sharing the gospel with people, and some of the seed falls on good ground and takes root. Some of it falls on, on you know, uh, okay ground, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't grow quick enough. There's some of it that's 
taken away and trampled under the foot of men. Some of it's eaten by the birds. And he gives this, and the, the disciples say, I don't really understand what you're saying, and this is his response to them. Okay, Mark 4, 13 through 15. Then Jesus said, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? The farmer plants the seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. This is a little troubling for me, honestly, as I started to read it because I started to try to figure out a way to figure out what this really meant. And I think he's pretty clear. If I'm not paying attention, if I'm not giving my focus, if I'm not taking the word of God seriously to myself, then the things that are deposited at church that you hear during the week, conversations you have with other believers, time you spend in prayer, reading his word, there is a chance that some of that can be stolen from you. That would be wildly beneficial for you, but it can be stolen from you because you just allowed to sit it out there and I didn't really pay attention to it and walk away from it and it's gone. It can be stolen from you. John 10, 10. The thief's purpose, he's talking about the enemy, is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose, Jesus' purpose, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. It's pretty clear he's trying to steal and destroy. Letter E. <clears throat> fights against the gospel. It's one of the strategies of the enemy is he fights against the gospel. I can probably give you a personal scenario for most of these things in here in my life, but if I had to rank them in order of my experience, this would be at the top of the list. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 18. This is Paul talking to the church in Thessalonica. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. He prevented them. Here's Paul, the apostle, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He is trying to go back and teach and preach and disciple and share the gospel with all of these people, with this church, to, to help them grow deeper into their understanding of Christ, have um, help them spread the message of the gospel, but he can't go back there because Satan prevented him from doing it. I can tell you through numerous, countless numbers of experiences, any time Nina and I have set our head our mind, our action, or our hands towards doing something that would fulfill the direction of Scripture, to take the gospel to other people, to plant a church. I can tell you that in any step that, may, that is a forward movement advance that has been, uh, a decision's been made and we're acting on that decision, that the same issue pops up to us almost every single time. Same thing. It's after a while, at the first couple of times, we were like, this is nuts. And then as it continued to happen again and again and again, we went, oh, I understand what's happening here. There's a strategy of a resistance 
to us making a forward motion. Let me be very clear. This does not happen only to the pastor or leader or ministry people. It happens to everyone. And there have been many obedient actions that have been stifled because we did not realize what we were facing was resistance and we misjudged it and said, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to do that. It's not meant to be. And we let it go. And if you have something like that, uh, welcome to the club because I do too. But anytime you go and try to obey the direction of Almighty God, your leading superior officer as a soldier of Christ, Anytime you go do that, you need to expect there to be resistance for you. <clears throat> Last one, accusations. Accusations. Revelation 12, 11 through 10, or 10 through 11. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Now this passage is talking about um, kind of, it's more focused on end time stuff. It's more focused on the things that happen towards the end of days. But there's a, there's a portion in the middle here that lets us know part of the enemy strategy. The accusers of our brothers and sisters, this is a believer's. The accusers of our brothers and sisters have been thrown down the earth. The one who accuses, present tense, not past tense, present tense, who accuses them, our brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, before God day and night. There is an accuser, think courtroom, prosecutor, defendant, prosecutor, the accuser, is making a case against you all the time. Happens all the time. But if you look at some of these, you can start to see our enemy has a long history of knowing humanity, behaviors, tendencies, customs, ideas, appetites, recognizes plans from people who that worked on other people that are similar to you and might be pulling those forward who knows and you could look at some of these and be like it's a lot bro a lot of strategy i mean how do how am i supposed to know what's on the walls in that back room how am i supposed to know what's the plan against all of us. How am I supposed to know? This is how do I navigate the minefield that is this strategy that the enemy is laid out there? It can be very daunting and overwhelming if you just focus on the strategy of the devil. <clears throat> how are you supposed to make it through his strategy? How are you supposed to make it through? what he has laid out in front of you. Ephesians 10, or 6, 10 through 13. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on 
all of God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies like things you can see, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. How are you supposed to deal with and endure past the strategy of the enemy of God that is plotting against you? You be filled with the Spirit of God. You be filled with him and his mighty power. You put on his full armor. You stand there, and because you know his strategy, and because the enemy has, his plan is very basic, to undermine us. It's very basic. But the all-powerful, almighty, all-creative God has given you an insight through his word to what his strategy is, and he's given you the equipment and the tools to endure it. There should be no fear in you when you face the opposition of the enemy because you don't have to be afraid of him. When your dad shows up on the scene, everything changes. When the spirit of God that's inside of you rises up and, and, and everything changes. The enemy has a plan against you. Yes, you do not have to be afraid of it. And if his initial plan will not succeed, he will reevaluate and try something else. If he can't destroy you completely from your faith in Christ, maybe he can destroy your integrity. If he can't destroy your integrity, maybe he comes after parts of your character. Maybe if he can't destroy your character, it comes after your marriage or your relationships. If he can't destroy your marriage or your relationships, maybe he's coming after your friendships. If he can't come after your friendships, maybe he's coming after your credibility. If he can't come after your credibility, maybe he's coming after your courage. If he can just get you to shut your mouth and not say anything about God, anything about what you believe. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I want to sit here passively and just make it through the day. I don't want to make these people at my job think I'm some crazy religious kook. I don't want the people that I hang out with to look at me any differently. I don't want that to happen. If he can just get you to shut your mouth, fine. You go to heaven and be with God. Just don't take anybody else with you. And if we do that, we have become occupied with civilian life instead of the life as a soldier in the army of God because you were not called. You were your purpose, your design was not called and not orchestrated out for you to sit there and have a great job and all this kind of stuff and go through your life and come to church and clap and then go to heaven. You were you are designed and supposed to be following his guidance and his word and by doing that, it encroaches on the darkness. It encroaches on what we refer to in the past in the old school as enemy territory. Enemy territory is just a place where God is not believed. So go into those places and take the light of the gospel, knowing full well there's a plan against you, and not caring and not being surprised when something pops up, not being surprised when some resistance hits you, not being surprised when there's something that the enemy tries, some lie that he tries to roll across your mind, not, not being surprised that there's an attempt to deceive you, not being surprised, but prepared with his word, 
standing firm in God and through his mighty power inside of you and going where he says to go. You don't have to go looking for a fight. There is darkness all around you. Anytime you try to bring the light into the darkness, what's going to happen is you're going to face some type of resistance. It doesn't matter because you're on mission. You're on mission. And not you, we are on mission. Later on down this year, we're going to tell you more about the mission that God's put in front of us as a church. The places we're going to go in darkness. And I'm telling you now, I'm fully expecting for the resistance to happen. And because it's a bigger step than we've ever taken as a church before, that I'm expecting the resistance to be greater. And guess what? God will still provide. He will still open the door. He will still clear the road. He will still do what he said he was going to do. All I have to do is not get caught up in civilian life. How do I look? How is this translates out for us? How is this going to look to the other people who have churches around here? How is this going to be perceived by, by some other religious group or other pastor, other minister? How is this going to look to other people who are believers? Nobody cares. Our goal is to obey the direction of the God who sends us and walk in there as his soldiers. And all a soldier means is that I'm carrying the light into a dark place. I'm advancing on the enemy's territory. And that's what all of us are supposed to be doing. All of us? All of us supposed to be doing that, man? Can I just... Like volunteer somewhere and let you guys go do that and I'll maybe drop something in the offering as you guys go out to do that. That may be a, a role of it that you're supposed to play. But you're supposed to be taking the light that is inside of you everywhere. Everywhere that's dark. So, families, parents, I think we may need to reevaluate how we pray for our kids. We may need to commit beyond what we already do because there is a scheme and a plan that's laid out against them. And if that doesn't make you mad, like righteous indignation, frustrated, angry with the enemy, then I don't know what's going to. The very last thing, and we'll get into this at the end of the series, the very last thing that Paul says in the armor of God, he says, pray. Pray. Stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're going to talk about how to put on the full armor of God later in the series. But be wise that there's a strategy against you. You have a God who's going to help you navigate through it. It's like knowing the dealer if you're playing poker, which you don't gamble. But if you're, if, you, if you're playing poker, you know the dealer, and he's dealing you a certain number of cards. And he's telling you what the other guy has. And if you know the dealer, the game's rigged in your favor. But I'm kind of nervous if i got to let go a couple of the cards. Let him go. Is he really telling me what's going on in that over there with the enemy, or is he just kind of my misunderstanding? No. Uh, his agenda is to win. 
and his plan to do that is through you and through me.